Hello, beautiful. Welcome back to the Self-Care Keto Podcast. I'm your coach, Jess, bringing you a magical experience to help you release the weight from your body and from your soul. I first off just want to thank you guys for listening. I swear, it's getting to the point where almost every single day, somebody is telling me how much they love the podcast, and I am beyond floored. And I'm just so excited that you're here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for loving the podcast. Thank you for sharing it with a friend. And if you would leave a five-star review, my goodness, that would mean so much to me. That really helps the podcast to grow and for um, you to kind of pass it forward, pay it forward uh, for other people to be able to find um, this kind of encouragement and inspiration and transformation that you're experiencing through listening. So today I want to talk with you guys about how to have a healthy relationship with food. (laughs) Like it's easy, right? No, it's it, it's not. Um, it's not that simple. It's it's multifaceted. Um, but this actually, this episode is inspired by one of my clients who asked me the question: How do I have a healthy relationship with food as a moderator? And last week on the podcast, if you missed that episode, make sure you go back and listen. It's a short one, but it it is about abstainers versus moderators, and this is a little. Um, assessment that I do with my clients. It's a self-assessment. You can identify yourself as either an abstainer or a moderator, and it just kind of helps you to understand a little bit about your relationship with food and what will help you to feel more successful. Um, but basically, just to sum it up, um, first of all, I didn't create this. It's it's an idea created by Gretchen Rubin, and it doesn't apply just to food, um, but to uh, basically how you make decisions in life. Um, and essentially, for abstainers, rigidity helps them to to succeed. Um, They just like to be able to make a decision once. um, I don't eat blankety blank food anymore. Um, And then that's that. And they just decide it and then they stick to it and kind of eliminate the decision out of their mind from here on out, just compartmentalize it. I don't have to stress about it. I don't have to think about it. And they're just kind of rigid and rigidity helps them to succeed. Meanwhile, a moderator, uh, for them, flexibility helps them to succeed. And, you know, They don't, the idea of making that decision once and then feeling kind of stuck with it, like that feels like the opposite of what's going to help them to succeed, right? Um, So she kind of describes, you know, abstainers, rigidity helps them to succeed, moderators, flexibility helps them to succeed. I would kind of add to that um, for moderators who, who prefer more flexibility, I think that they feel safer knowing that they can change their mind right? And for abstainers, they feel safer knowing that they don't have to change their mind. (laughs) And really both are true. And it's two sides of the same coin, but you're going to resonate with one more than the other. And so uh, definitely, you know, go back and listen to last week's episode. But today I'm going to be talking not just about how to have a healthy relationship with food as a moderator, um, but also as an abstainer and really just in general. So you don't even have to know what I'm talking about with abstainers versus moderators to um, really get a lot out of this episode. So how to have a healthy relationship with food. And again, uh, here we are. I'm going to be speaking from personal experience, although I definitely have uh, a lot of professional experience behind me as well. Um, I have been a weight loss coach, health coach, life coach for the past five years now. I'm a certified life coach. I have my master's degree in life coaching. I've worked with so many clients over the last five years to help them heal their relationship with food. I I, I am a weight loss co- coach, but the way that I help you to lose weight <laughs> is actually, um, it's, a, it's a natural side effect of healing your relationship with food. And that's why I'm actually more heavily trained as a life coach than I am in uh 
you know, nutrition. I, I have some training in nutrition uh, through the American Nutrition Association. I felt that that was important to be able to gain that credential, but um, so much more heavily trained as a life coach because really uh, coaching is not about just changing your behavior, but it's about changing your beliefs. Because if you never get down to the level of changing your beliefs, you will always self-sabotage. Self-sabotage happens when our willpower runs out and we default back into line naturally with our beliefs. That's the easiest, most familiar thing for us to do. And that's what we will do. Um, essentially, we our behavior modification runs out. And so that's why we've, we've all lost the five, same five or 10 pounds over and over again. And we wonder what the hell is it going to take for me to actually succeed? That's the missing piece is you actually have to change your beliefs. And that means really what we're talking about today with having a healthy relationship with food. So I know I mentioned, uh, you know, that we would be having kind of part two of the sneak preview of this week's, uh, this month's mindset class, Motivation Magic, helping you to understand your unique form of motivation so that you don't have to change anything about yourself. Uh, you just change your environment to match how you are naturally wired, uh, leaning into the magical, unique motivation that you have. There's nothing wrong with your motivation. There's nothing wrong with you. You, you are naturally creative, resourceful, and whole. The only thing wrong is the bullshit conditioning that you have uh, layered over top of uh, what is already perfect and, and wonderful about you. And so um, that's what this month's mindset class is about. And so two of the fun personality tests that are, in, that are involved with that is the abstainers versus moderators, and then um, understanding your... Um, natural motivation personality type. Are you a rebel? Are you an obliger? Are you a questioner? Or are you an upholder? And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, part two of that sneak preview to understand, um, you know, that that four different um, options personality test. But I really wanted to interject um, with this episode because I did have that um, I did have that question from a client about how, well, how do I have a healthy relationship as a moderator? And I thought to myself, well, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, um, okay, I just found out I'm an abstainer or I just found out I'm a moderator. And and now what do I do? What do I do with this information? How do I actually apply it to be successful? How do I have a healthy relationship with food? So without further ado, I'm going to give you guys five things that have really helped me to heal my relationship with food. And have helped my clients to heal their relationship with food. And today's going to be some knowledge, right? But simply knowledge does not lead to transformation. It's knowledge and it's implementation of that knowledge. It's practice. It's the integration of that knowledge. And put simply, that just takes time. And so you're going to learn some great stuff today. And I really encourage you, you know, don't just let it go to your head, but like just pick one thing and go try to start implementing that. Try to start integrating that. I'm sure one thing will resonate most with you. Um, maybe you've already done some of these things, but you're like, ah, that's the missing piece. Or maybe you haven't done any of it. And you're like, oh my God, I have so much to do. You know, just just start small. Okay. So what I found, and I'm sure this will resonate for a lot of people, is that I was never able to change my mindset around food. Um, just starting with my, starting with my thoughts. You know, so many of us are like, oh, okay, I just need to change the way that I think about food. I, and we, we really kind of prioritize, especially here in Western society, we prioritize kind of what's called this top-down approach, 
we believe that if we can, um, you know, change our thoughts, then we can change our behaviors. And, and cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the main, most popular approaches that we use here in the States, especially. But there's a lot of different um, therapeutic approaches if you've ever been in, in therapy or counseling. Um, but one way to think about behavior change is, is the top-down approach. So I'm going to start with my thoughts, and then that's going to trickle down um, to essentially to my body. And it's going to, you know, I'm going to start living it out through my body, through my behavior. And that's one approach, but then there's also a bottom-up approach. And so it's kind of more of the theory of like, well, I'm going to change my body to actually change my mind. And both are absolutely valuable, right? Um, and so for me, though, it really actually started with what, what it took for me was more of a bottom-up approach. And so I'm going to give you some examples of what I mean by that. So the very first thing that I want to mention about how to have, have a healthy relationship with food, and this probably will be like, duh, as soon as you hear it, but you have to get out of food addiction. And I just really want to acknowledge that addiction is a, is a real thing. Um, and some people might dispute like, oh, you can't be addicted to food because food is not inherently addictive. That's true in general. I, I, I should probably specify get off of sugar addiction <laughs> because sugar definitely is addictive. Um, physiologically, we can see what it does to the brain. It lights up the same reward centers of the brain as drugs do, as cocaine. Um, and so it is highly addictive. Sugar is very addictive and processed foods are very addictive. So food found in nature, um, you know, you're never going to get addicted to like apples, like, or eggs or, or steak, right? Um, some people, uh, might also say there's actually something, it's an eating addiction, right? Um, but it's not related to like a chemical addiction. There's nothing inherently chemically addictive about certain foods, other certain foods do have actual like chemically addictive properties, and that is sugar. And that is also these highly processed foods that are not found in nature. They are designed in a lab by food scientists specifically to create what is called a bliss point. And that is like this perfect conglomeration of sweet, fat, and salt that lights your brain on fire and lights up the reward centers of your brain and makes your brain feel literally compelled to eat more. And that makes people money, right? <laughs> so there's definitely intent and design to this. And I'm not trying to, you know, just um, sound like a, cons a conspiracy theorist or whatever, but this is the reality of the, the world in which we live. So it's really, really important to get out of this addiction that is truly physiological because you're never going to win the battle of your mind if your brain is addicted, Right. Um, if your physical body is addicted, both in the chemical responses that are happening in your brain, the blood sugar response the, that is happening in your, in your bloodstream. So naturally, when you eat an excess of sugar or carbohydrates, your blood sugar is going to raise super high. And then, you know, your, your hormone insulin is going to come in to do its job and kind of usher out uh, too much energy in your bloodstream can lead to energy toxicity. That's not a good thing. And so very adaptively, very intelligently, your body says, oh, this is an excess of energy that we don't need right now. Let's save it for later and and store it in our fat cells. And so it ushers it out um, for storage in your fat cells, and then your blood sugar dips. And then you feel really low. And your brain, again, very intelligently compels you like, oh, we're low on energy. We need to consume more sugar. We need to consume more carbohydrates, which are the fastest. It's the fastest form of energy. 
And so a lot of us are just riding this blood sugar roller coaster over and over again. Our kids are riding this blood sugar roller coaster and we're, we're stuck in this cycle of addiction and we feel powerless and we feel stuck and kind of rightfully so because that's a, that's a real, um, thing is that your brain is kind of overriding your mind in that situation. When I say your mind, I mean um, more than just your your brain activity, like your soul, your seat of consciousness, um, who you really are. And you're like, you kind of feel this way, like, why can I not do what I want to do? I know what I want to do. Why can I not just do it? Why do I, why do I keep sabotaging? And uh, we really need to give a lot more credit than what we do to the physiologically addictive nature of sugar and processed foods. So I like to tell people, you know, it's not you, it's the food. And this was such a huge realization to me when I finally got off of sugar addiction. Um, it was it was such a light bulb moment to me. And honestly, more than anything else, it made me feel so angry because my entire life, I thought that the problem was me. I was taught that the problem was me. I was taught that I had a lack of willpower, that I had a broken metabolism, that I just thought that I enjoyed pleasure too much. Like, whatever it was, I thought that the problem was me. And really it turns out that the majority of the problem was food. Of course, I had some screwed up beliefs and I was able to heal those things as well, but only after I got off of the food addiction. The, and, and again, I should say, you know, the, the addictive foods maybe. Um, so this is where <laughs> I'm so passionate about keto. I'm so passionate about ketosis because what this does is it really provides quite a magical experience to help you break the addiction to sugar. And it is through um, restricting, I'll, I'll just use that word, but it, it's it's therapeutic restriction <laughs> of carbohydrates. So when you actually can switch metabolic states from being primarily a sugar burner to being primarily a fat burner and um, kind of experience the magic of satiety, meaning you finally feel full for the first time. Like this took me maybe about, I don't know, five, five days after being uh, eating, following a quote unquote keto diet for the very first time. This was back in 2013. I started uh, eating Atkins. And so I was following the first phase of Atkins, which is what's called induction. And essentially that's a, a ketogenic diet, but I didn't know, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying to drop 10 pounds as quickly as possible, three weeks before Thanksgiving. And I was so pleasantly surprised by how amazing I felt that I finally felt full for the first time, that I no longer had that compulsion after dinner to now go eat something sweet, salty, sweet, salty, sweet, salty, um, essentially just feel bloated and distended and so ashamed of myself, go to bed vowing to tomorrow's going to be different and then probably restricting all day and doing, doing the same thing again at dinner time the next night. And that was my life. And I was finally able to break out of that, not because I had some light bulb epiphany or a mindset shift or whatever. It was simply because it took me about five days to get off of the physiological addiction to sugar. And when I finally got through that, um, it was just like all the lights came on. And I've never felt anything like it. And I just encourage everybody to actually experience ketosis. You don't have to be in it forever. But man, it is a natural physiological state, and I am such a big proponent of of ketosis as being therapeutic, beneficial, natural, healing to your body, um, healing to insulin resistance, healing to hormonal issues, so many different things, Um, healing to mood issues, like my depression and my anxiety totally abated, my skin cleared up, my digestive issues cleared up. I mean, so many amazing things happened um, above and beyond the weight loss 
uh, and really the food freedom was the, the biggest thing. And so I would just always encourage anybody, give it two weeks. Like, no matter who you are, like just run the experiment, see how it feels. Don't judge it. Don't say, oh, I could never live without bread or I could never live without you fill in the blank of whatever that food is. Like you don't have to live without it forever. Don't let, you know, don't let duality or that black and white thinking stop you. Just run an experiment and see, you don't know how good you can feel until you know how good you could feel. And so that really broke the physiological addiction for me to these addictive foods. But still there was a psychological addiction there and, you know, a dependency Uh, an emotional dependency. I was using a lot of different types of foods to regulate my emotions and just kind of habit. Psychological dependency is just kind of the nature of habit. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Your neurons are your, um, you know, the electro electric signals in your brain, right? And so certainly there was still a lot of habit change that had to take place. um, A lot of shifts in my mindsets, um, finding a way to reduce my emotional eating, like all of those things. But I would never have been able to do it. And I know because I never was able to do it before that. Um, and I believe me, I tried uh, for decades. And I, w- I would never have been able to do that without the physiological leverage that ketosis gave me. Again, the appetite suppression, but also just the food freedom, getting off of that blood sugar roller coaster and getting out of that physiological addiction. I cannot <laughs> overemphasize this enough. And this is such what I'm talking about with a bottom up approach. Like actually starting with your body, starting with your blood sugar, starting with your gut biome, like, and, and that is changing, um, your brain. And then you can actually change your mind, right? Um, it's really, really hard for our mind to overpower our brains. Sometimes we, we need to set up our body and set up our brains in such a way to, to serve us. Right. And, and we can understand scientifically what's happening and then actually do something about that and leverage that. So that's step number one about having a healthy relationship with food. Get off of the addictive foods. And you know what? It is going to suck a little bit. Like you're going to feel, <laughs> you're going to feel the withdrawals. You're going to be relying on your willpower, but you can do it. Find a friend, work with a coach, you know, just tell yourself like, I can do this for two weeks, right? And let your curiosity inspire you. Let, um, whatever, whatever kind of motivation that you need. Um, and again, you know, you're going to learn more about your motivational type, uh, in next week's episode, but definitely relying on external motivation is totally fine. You know, like it, I promise you, you're going to reach a tipping point after a couple of weeks and after a couple of months, you're going to reach another tipping point where you've really gotten through that psychological addiction. You'll be able to see people eat nachos in front of you, ice cream in front of you. You're not even going to be freaking phased. You know, like in the first week or two or, you know, first few months, it was still super hard for me to see my husband eat tortilla chips at the Mexican restaurant. And I'm just like passing on it, waiting for my <laughs> fajitas with no no shells to arrive, you know. Um, certainly, there's still that psychological addiction that's in place and that, that will take time as well. But you will reach a tipping point to get off of the physiological addiction and then you will reach a tipping point to get off of the psychological addiction. So that's number one about having a healthy relationship with food. Number two is another thing that I think we really don't give enough credit to, and that is nervous system regulation. So a lot of us are, well, we have, we really have no education about our, our nervous system states. And so, you know, just to make it really, really simple, certainly, you know, there's a lot more to it than this, but I want you to understand that your nervous system 
is usually in one of two states um, for the most part. You're either in um, your activated state, which is like fight or flight. Typically, you might have heard this before. Your um, sympathetic nervous system. And so you're in fight or flight. Another couple of Fs, Fs to add to it is like freeze or fawn. In other words, people pleasing. But when your body senses threat or danger or stress, you kind of get into this activated nervous system state called the sympathetic state. And then there is your parasympathetic state, which is often called your rest and digest state. So it's this is where you can feel calm um, and you know there's no sense of threat or you feel a lot more safety in your body. Um, and so again, you know, it doesn't have to do with your with your mind as much. Certainly, sometimes it can be conscious that you're like, oh my God, I feel threatened or oh my God, I feel stressed. But a lot of times this is actually very subconscious. This is the kind of innate intelligence of your body. And sometimes it is operating outside of your conscious thought. And a lot of times we are just so used to being in the sympathetic state, the fight or flight state that we don't even recognize it as that because we're in a, we're in a chronic state of stress. Um, the, the sympathetic state, fight or flight, freeze or fawn, like the, this is so useful to us when we are under acute stress, um, meaning like short, short term, but intense, you know? Um, that's what our bodies are designed for. Um, throughout the course of human history, there would be a threat, like maybe an animal or, you know, whatever. And we would have to, you know, respond very quickly and get ourselves back into a place of safety. And all of the animal kingdom does this, right? But here we are as humans now living on our modern day society with this chronic um, sometimes low level, sometimes intense level stress. And our bodies just get used to it. We adapt. It, it just feels familiar to us. So we don't even think about it, like that we are just in this activated state, but our body has such innate intelligence to it. And we need to switch back over to the rest and digest state. And we're spending our whole days just like chickens with our heads cut off, running around, responding to emails, working, you know, 60 hours a week. The kids are bugging you. Your parents are, need your help. Like, Trust me, I have been there, I know. Um, and I was living in a chronic state of fight or flight as well. Um, a lot of us also have a lot of trauma that we're carrying from childhood, from other adverse life experiences, and we've never really taken the time to heal and process that. We don't even know how. And so our body is kind of just stuck in this set point of hypervigilance, responding to a potential threat because we've been legitimately um, in very unsafe situations in our lives. And so our bodies, again, are very wise and they're trying to protect us. And so we're stuck in this chronic state of hypervigilance, looking out, when's the next shoe going to drop? Where's the next threat? Whatever it might be. And so, but here's the real um, take-home message here is remember that parasympathetic state is that rest and digest state. Think about the word digest. And so eating is a physiological switch to get your nervous system to calm down. And a lot of us don't realize that that's why we're doing it. And this can even be below the level of emotional eating. Like somebody, you could just be feeling like you're doing it out of habit. It could feel like mindless eating. It could feel just like, oh, I just need to break this habit. Um, every night when I watch TV, you know, I also happen to eat. Sure, certainly there could be an, a, just a pure mindless habit um, cue, trigger, response type of thing going on there, but also pay attention to your nervous system. Have you spent the entire day running around like crazy? And then this is the only time that your body knows that it's safe enough to unwind and you're using food to actually kind of, uh, trip that switch to get your nervous system to switch back over. Um, 
So again, you know, this doesn't mean that you consciously need to be experiencing a painful emotion. That definitely there is something to be said for emotional eating. I had a shitty day at work. I just broke up with so-and-so. Let me grab the Ben and Jerry's. And we kind of see that on TV as like, oh, well, that's emotional eating. But there is definitely um, a lot of nervous system regulation that we intelligently do without even conscious thought um, to just get ourselves back into that calm down state so that we can kind of recharge and then unfortunately wake up tomorrow to do it all over again. So what does nervous system regulation look like? Instead of using food to switch nervous system states, there are a variety of different things that you can learn that are body-based, somatic, that means body-based practices that you can do to actually help yourself switch down into a calm down nervous system state. There's different physical movements that you could do. There's, uh, it's called vagus nerve stimulation, and that's the nerve that runs from your throat all the way down to the base of your spine. And again, you know, eating in your throat, that stimulates your vagus nerve, but also so does laughing, so does singing, um, so does gargling, so does chanting, humming, you know, like lots of different things that you could do instead, um, movements that you could do, splashing yourself with cold water, like uh, temperature um, changes can regulate your nervous system. There's so many different things that you could do. I have a um, podcast episode a few back. Um, it was during an emotional eating series. So you can scroll back through the past episodes and you're going to see the first one in the, in the emotional eating series is called When Mindset work doesn't work. And so that's the one that you want to listen to for lots of different tips on how you can regulate your nervous system. Okay. So number one was getting off of the addictive foods. Number two is nervous system regulation. All right. Number three that I would say here is using food as self-care. And this is something that is just so simple, um, but a lot of us are not doing it. And so eating, obviously, is a fundamental human need. And not only do we need to eat to survive, but we need to eat certain foods to thrive. And if we're not getting enough of our nutritional needs met, we are not going to be um, operating at our highest potential. And you know, a lot of times I will use the analogy of sleep here because sleep is another one of those things that's a fundamental human need. And Certainly, we're all very familiar with feeling sleep deprived, right? And so, especially the moms, you know, but also dads, you know, if you've had, ever had young, young ones, you know, in your home waking you up at all hours of the night and you feel like a total zombie. And, you know, then there's that one glorious night when they sleep for six hours straight and you're checking to make sure that they're still alive. But you, you've just got six hours straight of sleep for the first time in months and you feel like a brand new person. You feel like the lights came on that day, right? And then you, you finally get back you know, then you regress and you finally, you finally get back um, to like sleeping eight hours a night or whatever it is that you were accustomed to before and you feel like a brand new person. And it's the same thing with food, except so many of us don't know what it feels like to get a full night's sleep, but with food, like to get a, um, the full um, capacity of getting our nutritional needs met. You don't even know what that feels like. So you don't know how good you can feel until you know how good you can feel. And I was talking about that a little bit with the the magic of ketosis. Um, And so using food as self-care is treating yourself the same way that you would treat the child that you're responsible for. You're going to make sure that your child, you know, is getting their nutritional needs met. I remember obsessing over the amount, the ounces of, of breast milk that my daughter was getting and so on and so forth, right? Because you're just like, this is my responsibility. I need to make sure that they sleep, stay at a comfortable temperature, get enough food, change their diaper, you know, and essentially, you know, just make sure they feel loved and held. Like that's all there is to it in the beginning. Um, and that's like the lowest level, the most basic fundamental of human needs is this physiological need. And so 
why I call it self-care is because I define self-care as meeting your own needs. And so it's not just about, you know, like, um, having great social times or finding your sense of meaning and purpose in life. And all of those things are also self-care. Those are fundamental human needs, but we're neglecting our physiological needs. And so to use food as self-care, um, I like to talk about approach goals instead of avoid goals. So many of us don't treat food as self-care. We treat food as the enemy. And so we have a bunch of avoid goals, you know, like meaning I, I can't eat this or I won't eat this. Well, what about what you will eat and what you can eat? right? And so kind of shifting and actually focusing more on, okay, uh, it's more like giving yourself a yes and. The way that I treat my daughter when it comes to, you know, sugar or whatever it might be, like she she doesn't eat keto, but I typically have her focus primarily on protein, whole foods, making sure she's getting her, you know, macronutrient and micronutrient needs met every day. Um, and once in a while, sure, you know, like you're at a birthday party or she wants to have a treat or whatever it might be. And the answer is yes. And so it's, it's not, okay, we're just going to eat just pizza today because we want to eat pizza. But I make sure that she has some grilled chicken with it or some breakfast sausage with any kind of protein. It's yes. And so we're not having just pizza because then we would be missing, um, some important nutrients. You're not getting enough protein there. Like, and so have the protein and have the slice of pizza. Um, so we're approaching instead of avoiding. I'm approaching the protein instead of avoiding the pizza. And that works for her as a child. And may, that might actually work for a lot of people as, as adults too. For some of you, it won't um, because pizza is not a safe food for you. Um, it causes the, the, it's got the addictive nature for you. The, the um, blood sugar roller coaster, um, you're insulin resistant. It's just a trigger food for you, whatever. Um, and so that might work for some people and it might not work for other people but using food as self-care. So focusing on, okay, I need to eat more instead of I need to eat less. I need to eat more of the foods that bless my body. I need to eat more protein. I need to eat more vegetables, more fiber, more fruits that have great antioxidants like blueberries and strawberries and you know things like that. So what do I need to eat more of instead of what do I need to eat less of um, is meeting your own needs and using food as self-care. And then also under this food as self-care um, Point number three, I would say setting up your own food boundaries. And so what does this mean? Um, basically increasing the amount of safety and pleasure in your life by setting up food boundaries. And boundaries are different than restrictions. Restrictions come from outside of you, from some type of external locus of control. The diet police, the keto police, what your doctor said, um, what that health coach said, uh, <laughs> what your diet plan says, whatever it happens to be. Um, it's using some type of external authority and submitting your own intuition to it. And then you feel like you're either succeeding or failing based on whether or not you're following the rules set by this external authority. You're following the restrictions set up by the government or set up by, you know, whomever it is that you're submitting yourself underneath, right? And so food boundaries is kind of my substitute for intuitive eating. And so when we think about intuitive eating, we tend to think like, oh, just eating whatever sounds good to you in any given scenario and there's no limitations and blah, 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 blah. Um, so certainly there is a book called Intuitive Eating and there's a movement about intuitive eating and there might be some of those principles that feel kind of built in to that. But to me, I say I, I do eat intuitively, meaning I let my intuition, my higher self, <laughs> the wisest part of myself um, design the way that I'm going to eat. And instead of, for me, it being moment to moment, what sounds good right now, it's me, when I set up my food boundaries, tapping into this inner wisdom 
of the foods that I know work for me and the foods that I damn well know do not work for me, right? And it doesn't, it doesn't come from an external authority saying, this food is bad for you or, you know, blah, 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 blah. It comes from personal experience. Like that food makes me have a really hard time not eating 12 more of that food. So that food falls outside of my food boundaries. It's not a safe food for me. And yeah, it might give me a little bit of temporary pleasure, but certainly not long-term pleasure. So does it give you pleasure and does it create safety for you to have this food or does it not? This food makes me wind up on the toilet. This food makes me feel so bloated because gluten is not my friend. Like this food just gives me horrible gas. This food gives me a headache every time I eat it because it's got all these chemicals in it. Um, Whatever it happens to be, this food causes inflammation. Like um, you know, seed oils. Like every time, every time I go out to eat, um, I, I do gain a little bit of like a pound or whatever on the scale the next day because I know that they use inflammatory seed oils. And so it doesn't mean that I never um, go out to eat, but it certainly does mean that in my food boundaries, it's something that's more um, of a sometimes thing than an, than an everyday thing that I'm, I'm allowing myself to, you know, have something that's made with seed oils because I know it's inflammatory to me and it does, just doesn't make me feel good right? And so food boundaries really helps you to break out of the all or nothing mentality as well. Um, And so I have a whole episode about this. I know that the episode number for this one is episode 89, how to set up your food boundaries. And this helps you to break out of the all or nothing mentality by actually kind of imagining your food boundaries like a dartboard. And so, so often we have such a narrow view of success. Like only, we only have the bullseye of the dartboard that we're aiming for every time. We're aiming for perfection. And if we have a day where we fall outside of this narrow definition of success, which is often not even our intuitive definition of success, but it is some external authorities definition of success that we're submitting ourselves to. And it's certainly going to feel restrictive when you do it that way. It's going to feel miserable when you do it that way. It's going to feel like you're abandoning yourself when you do it that way because you are, right? Um, And so it helps you to break out of this all or nothing mentality by not just having the small circle of the bullseye, but actually having two other concentric circles outside of that. And I call that the sometimes circle and the rarely circle. And so again, what creates safety and pleasure in your life? What are you aiming for the majority of the time? And certainly the foods that make you feel the best, but also foods that you know are conducive to your weight loss if that's one of your primary goals right now. Well, these foods would be in your bullseye, but also success can look like on the weekends having this food that I don't have during the weekdays. And maybe that's your definition for what signals you to fall in the sometimes circle and that's still success. Maybe the sometimes circle is um, you get invited out by a friend um, and you know whatever. You want to say yes because you really value relationships. And so you know that you might not be eating um, in the bullseye, but certainly you're still going to have some intention and some boundaries when you're going out to eat, but you allow yourself to have these types of foods when you go out to eat versus just when you're home and you have a lot more control over what you're eating. And then there's the rarely circle, birthdays, anniversaries, vacations, whatever it happens to be for you. Um, and so, you know, I just had a client tell me the other day that um, she actually had a really just shitty thing happen in her life. Um, it, it definitely produced a lot of grief for her. And she really wanted to just have some regular, you know, chocolate, like some good old Ghirardelli's chocolate. And she was conscious about what she was doing. And she said, you know what, this merits my really circle. And she actually felt really good. And she knew that she was soothing with food and we don't demonize soothing with food. We're taking care of ourselves when we're soothing ourselves. Um, It's not something that we do every day to numb out. Um, She's done so many 
great practices to learn how to self-soothe in ways other than food, but she just really wanted some damn chocolate and she had it. And she was like, yeah, this meets the rarely circle criteria for sure. And she felt in total alignment and she had no guilt the next day and so on and so forth. And so again, I really encourage you guys with this whole food as self-care mentality to go, go listen to episode 89 about setting up your own food boundaries. And this is kind of how I would define intuitive eating. So again, not, um, whatever my intuition is telling me in the moment, because I know so many of you listen to that and you're like, they don't know me. That's bullshit. Girl, you don't know. (laughs) You don't know my life. Like, because my body will tell me that cookies sounds good every hour of the day. And so that's not what I would say as is intuitive eating. I know some intuitive eating experts that would be like, then eat cookies every hour of the day because you're going to run out of, eventually that's going to wear off and you're going to want foods that actually bless your body. (laughs) And you're like, I don't think you know me. (laughs) <laughs> right? So I, I look at it differently. Um, your intuition is not necessarily um, that momentary thing that sounds good. Your intuition is getting in touch with your higher self, your inner wisdom, creating a, an intentional space for you to be able to do that and ask yourself, no, what do I really know is true and beautiful and right for me? What foods make me feel safety? What foods make me feel pleasure? And those are the foods that I'm going to set up as my food boundaries. Okay. Number four, is learning the skills of change. And so changing your behavior <laughs> is actually important. We, I know we talked in the beginning about changing our beliefs in order to change our behavior, but we still have to change our behavior. And you know, uh, even that whole step number one of getting off of the addictive foods, like before we even change our beliefs, that's changing your behavior. And so how are you going to be able to do that? And, and again, these things are not in order. They kind of all go along with each other. Um, but how are you going to be able to get through that two weeks? So learning the skills of change is actually really, really important. And so two books that I really highly recommend, um, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg and Atomic Habits by James Clear. And we've learned a lot um, from neuroscience about how to actually change our brains and change our behaviors. And so typically, yeah, there is this concept of certainly mindless eating or habit eating Um, or just habits in general surrounding food, whether we're overeating, whether we're eating after dinner, we want to break that habit, whatever time of day that we're eating, we want to change it up. Um, just kind of, you know, being in the break room at work and there's donuts and, oh my God, you know, I can't resist this type of stuff is all just like habitual, right? So, you know, learning the skills of change, certainly there is always the cue or the trigger in your environment. It could be time of day. It could be seeing something that sounds delicious. It could be anything. And then there's the behavior that you're doing. And then there's the reward that you're getting out of it. And so in order to um, successfully change something, a lot of times we need to, um, that we're, we're not going to be able to get rid of that cue. Um, if you always eat ice cream at 7 p.m. every night and now you're, you know, trying to get into a state of ketosis and you're like, okay, it's 7 p.m. and your body is going to be really uncomfortable. I promise you. <laughs> like that's, that's just real. Changing habits is very uncomfortable in the beginning. Um, but you're going to have that cue. Okay. It's seven o'clock. I'm watching my favorite TV show or whatever happens to be. And I want that ice cream and my, my husband is eating it in front of me. Um, and then, you know, typically the behavior that you do is you eat the ice cream too. And then you get the reward out of that of like, oh, the dopamine in your brain. Oh, it feels so good. The relief of, you know, not trying to fight it. Um, that's a reward in and of itself. And so, 
you're going to have to find a replacement for that reward. And certainly it might be, you know, a um, keto ice cream that you bought from the store. It might be something homemade. I like to make my own homemade protein ice cream using like a Vitamix and a little bit of almond milk and protein powder and um, frozen berries and blending that all up so that the consistency is like a soft serve ice cream. So, you know, you're going to have to find another reward um, that matches the kind of reward that you did have, right? Um, if it's an, if it's alcohol, you know, there are alcohol replacement drinks or whatever happens to be, or, um, so think about like, what kind of reward is this giving to me and how can I imitate that? So like, again, if it's alcohol, if it's helping you to, re- you to relax, what can I do that's going to help me to relax? And so certainly you want to hold that wine glass in your hand. Maybe you're going to put something else in that wine glass, but is that thing helping you to relax? No, probably not, but it tastes good and you're drinking out of the same glass. So there's the familiarity, but what could help you to calm down? So what could also help you to produce that same reward? Cause this is where we fall short. We're like, okay, well I've switched to drinking herbal tea instead of wine, but it's not working. Well, yeah, because the wine was helping you to calm down and you know, maybe the chamomile tea is helping you a little bit to calm down, but what, what else can you do to calm down? Can you add in maybe a nighttime bath or something else? Um, a walk, um, something that would physiologically, Remember the somatic techniques that we talked about. Go, you can go back and listen to that. But something that will physiologically help you to switch states um, or provide that relaxation that the alcohol was providing to you. So these are just examples of like, these are the things we actually have to think about and be really, really practical about when it comes to habit change. All right. And then the last one. Um, so uh, again, let's review. The first one was getting off of the addictive foods. Number two is nervous system regulation. Number three is treating food as self-care and setting up your food boundaries. Uh, number four is learning the skills of change. And then number five, I would say, is actually changing your thoughts and rewiring your beliefs. So um, your thoughts are flowing out of your beliefs. So in order to change your thoughts, you you have to change your beliefs. So I'm grouping these two things together. But a lot of times, this number five here, this is where we start our journey. When we think like, oh, I just need to think about food differently, or I just need to tell myself, um, no, I'm going to do this now instead and try to like redirect my thoughts and it's just not working. Well, yeah, that's because your physiological addiction is overriding your thoughts or your innate intelligence of your nervous system wanting to switch states is overriding your thoughts, right? Like, and so thought change is often not the most accessible thing to people. Don't get me wrong. Some people do really, really well with this top-down approach. And so, but if, if, if it's not working for you, (laughs) just know that you're not alone and you don't have to start here, but eventually we do need to get here. Um, as far as changing our thoughts and rewiring, rewiring our beliefs. And so this is kind of the, um, bottom up approach is the idea of changing your body to change your mind instead of uh, changing your mind first. Right. And so there are several things that I work through with my clients on this, but you know, how to have a healthy relationship with food, like uh, kind of getting back to that question of an abstainer versus a moderator. Like I think kind of my client was asking like, okay, well, I'm a a moderator. So flexibility helps me to succeed, but how do I make sure that I'm having like not too much flexibility where I'm not actually seeing progress, right? Like I'm, I'm using everything in the, in the book as a reason to be flexible. And so essentially I'm winding up with no boundaries at all. And then an abstainer who rigidity helps you to succeed. Um, you know, how do you make sure that you're not just falling into the trap of perfectionism and the all or nothing mentality and looking at it as, um, restrictions instead of boundaries. So these are like the things that actually influence your experience of yourself and your experience of your strategies right? And so a lot of times we might have the strategies that are actually going to work, but 
if the way that we're thinking about those strategies is unhelpful, then we're probably not going to follow them because nobody wants to feel miserable. Nobody wants to feel restricted. Um, And so changing your thoughts is really important. And changing your beliefs is at the root of changing your thoughts. And so basically, uh, one of the things kind of the surface level of changing your thoughts is I always assert to my clients like, man, you deviating from your food plan is not what's the main thing causing the inefficiencies in your weight loss journey. Like imagine having a deviation and then actually just being able to boom, get right back on track the next day and like not letting it turn into any drama, whatever. Well, certainly you would make so much more progress, but that's not what's happening. Every time you have a deviation, it's just sending you into a shame spiral. And now you're quote unquote off the rails for two days, three days, a week, three weeks, three months, right? Like, and we've all been there. And so that is not because of the deviation from your food plan. Like we tell ourselves that like, oh, I can't have cookies ever because if I eat one cookie, it sends me into a tailspin. And yes, definitely. I'm sure that it does like just light up the reward centers of your brain and kind of triggers that addictive quality, the blood sugar roller coaster, so on and so forth. But you're going to come off of that. And then the next morning, why not just eat uh, like back to a normal, you know, high protein, good healthy fat, like that'll get you back into a state of ketosis. Why not do that the next morning? It's not because of the cookie still producing some type of physiological response in your body, you know, 15 hours later. It's because of your mindset. It's because of the thoughts that you're having about that. It's because of what you made that deviation mean about yourself. And so I have a podcast episode, a few episodes back again, go listen to it. It's called Clean Pain, Dirty Pain. And clean pain is just actually allowing ourselves to feel the natural kind of pain that is built into the human experience. I feel disappointed that things did not go the way that I thought that they would go there. Or, um, you know, I followed my plan the whole week and the number on the scale is not what I expected it to be. And I feel frustrated. I feel disappointed. Um, I feel frustrated with myself about the gap between where I am and where I want to be. I feel frustrated or disappointed or let down um, or angry that I didn't do what I said I was going to do, right? But dirty pain is making that mean something about you. It's essentially blame and shame is what dirty pain is. And so it's saying you know, things to yourself like, I'm not good at this, so I might as well not even try. Or whenever something doesn't go according to plan, it means I did something wrong. So you step on the scale and you don't see the number that you want to see. So that means you did something wrong or that you're not good at this or that your body is broken or that your body is fighting you. And these are beliefs that you hold about yourself because you learned them from someone else. And oh my God, this is all of the stuff that I've had to work through and heal in my relationship with food. And so honestly, those, those things that I just listed, I'm not good at this. When something doesn't go well, that means I did something wrong. My body is broken. My body's fighting me. Those are some of my biggest ones that I had to overcome. I work with dozens and dozens of these, uh, you know, types of beliefs that come up with my clients that I, that I work with. And a lot of this is exploring, um, kind of what's the origin story of this belief? Like who taught you this and when, how old were you? Oh my God, you were, you were five, you were seven, you were 12, You know, like I was 10 when I was taught how to count calories and told that I had a slow metabolism. Like imagine how that sticks with you. Um, Disordered relationship with food as a teenager. Like your brain is not fully formed until you are 27 years old. And so these things get cemented um, into our brains. Remember I said the neurons that um, 
fire together, wire together. It means we form these really strong associations in our brains. And the great news is that we have what's called neuroplasticity, meaning we can change our brains. They're plastic, they're changeable, they're moldable. You can actually change your habits and you can change your beliefs. You can change your behavior. You can change anything that you want to change if you have the tools to do it. And as long as you can remove the obstacles that are getting in your way, and a lot of times the obstacle that's getting in your way are what I would we call internal obstacles. In other words, mindsets, beliefs that you've inherited from people who were authority figures in your life, who you trusted, and you didn't know any better. You didn't ask for these beliefs. This worldview was handed to you. Um, your relationship with food looks a lot like your mom's relationship with food or your aunt's relationship with food or your dad's relationship with food. Like all of these things, we're just little kids trying to get our needs met. And we learn, oh, well, this is how I have to be or how I have to behave or who I need to be. This is the personality that needs to show up. This is, this is what gets me praised. This is what gets me love. This is what gets me attention. This is what gets me rejected, you know? And so we learn, and this is what forms our personality or our ego. Um, and ego doesn't mean like, oh, I'm so, I, I have a big ego. I'm so prideful. It just is the part of our consciousness that is um, in the driver's seat of trying to get our needs met. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's helpful. It's adaptive. It's protective. And so, but we can create a sense of safety within ourselves apart from these lies. We can, we can realize the lie for what it is, and we can actually rewire the beliefs that are no longer serving us and choose beliefs that would actually be helpful to us. And so this, again, is mindset work that I do with my clients um, because I, I, I like to say, you know, I help women lose weight with a keto diet and a self-care mindset. So we, we need both the external strategies, things like eating high protein, um, being in somewhat of a, ca- a calorie deficit, getting our hormones balanced. Like we need these actual strategies, um, eating, uh, reducing inflammation, like all these things. Yes, this is the very practical, concrete strategies that are going to get you to your weight loss goal. But also we need the mindset that is going to allow us to enjoy the experience of following those strategies that it feels good to us, that it feels like, oh my God, I'm taking such good care of myself. I feel so free. I feel so satisfied. This is amazing. You know, I'm finally taking care of myself for the first time. I'm setting better boundaries in my life, not just with food, but with other people. And you feel like you're really making great progress. You're loving yourself and you're enjoying the experience. And that's what I love to do with my clients. So if you're the kind of person that you're just like, I I just, I, I, I can't get there, you know, like, Well, okay, maybe some of these things you've never thought about before, the addictive nature of the foods that you're eating, um, looking at food as self-care and setting up some food boundaries, learning those skills of change um, and nervous system regulation and, and those things before being able to change your thoughts. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, um, again, this is just knowledge, right? Knowledge doesn't lead to transformation. It is applied knowledge, you know, integrated knowledge, rehearsed, practiced over and over again. And I promise you, it will lead to your transformation. It's literally just a matter of time. It's applying these things over time and it will lead to your transformation. So I would love to let you know about two different ways that you can work with me as your coach. And the first one is through one-on-one coaching. And this is where we would um, work together for an initial commitment of eight weeks. We would talk every single day. We would have uh, a coaching session every single week um, where we are digging into all of these things, right? Whatever is top of mind, whatever is the thing that you need to work on the most, um, it's you're in the driver's seat and I'm there 
to provide resources. I'm there to be a mirror for you. I'm there to help you see your blind spots. I'm there to provide the external accountability that so many people need and thrive off of. And I'm there to also help you make those mindset shifts. Um, I can kind of reflect back to you like, oh my gosh, it sounds like you really see food this way. And you're like, yes, exactly. Like, But you just had never put words to it before. Um, and then as soon as we gain that awareness, then we develop the self-compassion and we um, kind of explore like, okay, do we want to change this? Is this helpful? Is this getting you further in the direction of where you want to go? And if not, okay, how do we gently set this down? Thank it for how it has served us up to this point and release it and choose something that is actually going to be more helpful. So I would love to work with you one-on-one. And this is the my favorite part about my work is my one-on-one coaching. Probably my second thing is making this podcast. But I would love to um, come alongside of you in your journey and help you experience the transformation that you're looking for, not just the weight loss, but the weight loss as a natural byproduct of healing your relationship with food or having a healthy relationship with food as this whole podcast episode has been talking about. So if you're interested in that, head on over to my website, theketofit.com. You scroll down to the bottom of any page, you're going to see a lot of good information on there. You can see uh, client progress photos, testimonials. You can see more about my services and the pricing and all of that stuff. Any page that you're on, you can scroll to the bottom and submit a curiosity call request form. So we do a completely free, um, probably a Zoom session, a video chat, um, because It's great for us to experience each other's presence, see if it feels like a good fit, and then we'll go from there as far as starting to work together. But it's completely free. And even if you decide not to move forward, I promise you, you're going to leave that call better than you were before you got on it because I'm going to give you either some um, strategy resources, like an actual strategy that you can try if you're feeling stuck, or mindset resources, or both on that free call. So the second way to work with me is actually through signing up for my self-care keto mindset masterclass, which is an online course. It's self-paced and it allows you to do some self-coaching. So all of the stuff that we've talked about today is inside of this online course. Um, All the tools, the mindset resources, the mindset exercises and journal prompts that I give to my clients, it's all inside of this online course. And so this is something that is a lot more financially accessible. And that's the biggest reason why I created it, right? Is because I know that not everybody um, may be in a place in your life where you can work one-on-one with a coach and that's totally okay. Maybe you just don't even feel the need to. You're just like, I am just a go-getter. Like I am naturally motivated. Like I just need the freaking tools and I'll be good to go. Like this is for you as well. And so um, head on over to my website, theketofit.com slash mindset, and you'll see um, that there's just a button you just click and you sign up and, and you get access same day. Um, there are payment plans available both for my one-on-one coaching as well as the um, Mindset Masterclass. So the Mindset Masterclass is priced at $397 and there are monthly payment plans from as low as $36 a month. So I really wanted to make this accessible for absolutely everybody. So I hope that this episode has been helpful to you guys. If you're feeling the call to go a little bit deeper Um, Again, head on over to my website and check out one of those options. If you just have any further questions or you want to connect, um, you can find me on social media. I am on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn at The Keto Fit. I'm also over on uh, TikTok now as Self Care Keto. Unfortunately, The Keto Fit was taken, but Self Care Keto is another one of my aliases here with with the podcast, and I love that one. So find me on social media. You can direct message me there and um, you know we can chat that way. You can send me an email to theketofit at gmail.com if you have any questions. Um, and I would just love to connect with you. 
So I hope you guys have a fantastic week. And then next week, we'll be back with that um, second sneak preview of the Mindset Motivation class to um, talk about the rebels, questioners, obligers, and upholders so that you can find out what is your motivational type. And that mindset class, I do a different mindset class every single month, and it's $22. And you can sign up for that at bit.ly slash self-care keto class. Um, if you want to kind of get a feel for what the online course is like, this is very um, this is a great way to get a feel for that because the the um, masterclass is set up with several of these mindset classes all rolled into one along with some other resources for you guys. So if you kind of want to test drive and be like, hmm, well, I like this masterclass thing. So sign up for the mindset class of the month. And this month, again, it's motivation magic. And you're going to learn whether you're an abstainer or a moderator, you're going to learn your motivational type as well. And it's so fun. And you're going to get some great tools and resources along with some mindset shifts to um, really start seeing the transformation that you're looking for. All right, guys, have a fantastic week. I'll talk with you soon.